The Kutte Sikha is Chelek Tazayin, Volume 16, the third Sikha for Purim. This Sikha focuses on the very last verse of the Megillah Sester, in which it describes how Mordechai HaTzadik became the visary to King Achashverosh, and he was admired and accepted, meaning his role was accepted by most of his brethren, meaning most of the Sanhedrin, and also the lesson that we can derive from this. Just as an introduction, just to familiarize ourselves, to make it easier to flow through the Sicha, there are two Talmuds. There's the Talmud Bavli and Talmud Yerushalmi. The difference between the Talmud Bavli and Talmud Yerushalmi is the Yerushalmi is more concise and more direct. Or to give it, to put it in perspective, in the Talmud Bavli, the style of learning is that there are a lot of questions and answers and refutations and all kinds of proofs and in other words, it's a whole uh, endeavor, it's a whole engagement until one reaches a conclusion with great clarity. In fact, the sages tell us that the verse in Megillus Eicha, which we read on Tishabav, which says, that Hashem made me dwell in darkness, is actually a subliminal reference to the uh, Babylonian Talmud, to Talmud Bavli. Why? Because it's like somebody looking for clarity in the darkness. You have to kind of feel your way around. You have to eliminate all kinds of objects and say, no, this is not what I'm looking for until you can finally find what you're looking for, whether it's a window or a door or so on. Whereas if somebody turns on the light, you see everything right away. There's clarity. You go straight for the target. And that is Talmud Yerushalmi. In general, whenever there's a debate, whenever there's a difference of opinion, between Bavli and Yerushalmi, between the Babylonian and Jerusalem and Talmud, the halacha is like the Bavli, because that is one that relates more to our reality. So let's go into the Sikha. On the very last verse in the Megillah where it says, Ki that Mordechai, the Yehudi, was the visary for King Achashverosh, he was great by all the Jews, he was accepted by most of his brethren. So the Chazal tell us in the Gemara that it says here, to most of his brethren. It doesn't say to all his brethren. This teaches us that actually some of the Sanhedrin parted from him. His brothers, quote-unquote, meaning his colleagues, the Sanhedrin, some of them parted from him. And Rashi explains the reason. Because, he, he, because of his duties now, he neglected his engagement in Torah, he neglected from the words of Torah, and he went into governance, and therefore they separated from him. This was not their style. Then the Gemara, after saying this, the Gemara continues and it says, quote, greater is the learning of Torah even more than saving lives. And that's Salas Nefashis. And it brings a proof for it. Because there's a very similar narrative described in the two, two biblical books. One is Ezra, and one is Nehemiah. And it describes a certain appearance by some of the great uh, ascent, by some of the great leaders of the time. And there it enumerates amongst them also Mordechai. However, in Ezra, which is an earlier book than Nehemiah, in Ezra it enumerates him after four names, meaning it, sta it states Mordechai's name after listing four names, meaning he's the fifth position. Whereas in the book of Nehemiah, it enumerates him, it lists him after five names, meaning he's in the sixth position. So the Gemara concludes that because he became, 
you know, like a minister. He became a, you know, part of the government. And he, so to speak, went down from his importance by the Chachamim. Therefore, but in a later book, in Nehemiah, he's already counted later in line of importance of greatness. So the Rebbe asked the following several questions. Number one, <clears throat> why would the Gemara have to learn this, this second thought, this second idea, from the difference between Ezra and Nehemiah, the difference between these two books and the way in the order that Mordechai was enumerated. It would seem that this could be learned out of the same verse that we began the whole discussion with, which is the final verse of the book of Esther, which says that he was favored or he was accepted by most of his brothers, not all of his brothers. So then you can already get an idea that this is not the optimal thing. Another question. If learning Torah is greater than even saving lives, then the question is, why would they only, so to speak, move his name on the list? In other words, why would they only demote him one position? It would seem that they had to be, totally eliminate him from the Sanhedrin. I mean, the whole idea of the Sanhedrin is to study Torah, and here you're saying that he's doing something which is less than studying Torah. So if anything, why wasn't he just totally moved? It seems like he's in the ranks of the Sanhedrin, he's in the ranks of the important people, it's just that they pushed him down one rank. What is the idea behind it? And and the question and the question would be that Rebbe says it's one of the two. I, I'm sorry. The third question would be: It seems for obvious from the verses, from the verse in the, the final verse in the Megillah, and from the whole story that Mordechai served in this task and this position for a lengthy period of time. So the question is one of the two: Either Mordechai should have taken the time to prove to everyone the righteousness of his way, meaning he should have taken. The, made the effort to explain to those members of Sanhedrin that didn't agree with him why this was the correct thing to do, or he should have just, you know, resigned from the position of Sanhedrin. In other words, it seems like he stayed in the Sanhedrin, but yet he wasn't part of the Sanhedrin in the sense of studying Torah, and he was serving other causes, other purposes. So the Rebbe says the explanation of all this is as follows. When we look at the words, the actual word that the Gemara stresses and that is L'Roiv Echel, that he was found favorable, he was accepted by most of his brothers. What does that tell you? That only some didn't accept him, only some disagreed with him, but most of his colleagues actually agreed with him. Most of his colleagues actually felt that he was doing the correct thing. And therefore, from this verse, not only there's no proof that learning Torah is greater than saving lives, Moral, in fact, just the opposite. Over here, you find you can say that saving lives, meaning helping the Jewish people, seeing to their needs, is actually greater than studying Torah. And how is that? Well, it's proven by the fact that, quote, most of his brethren, most of his colleagues, were actually in favor of what he was doing. And also now we can understand why he only pushed it over one position in the order between, you know, the Chemia and Ezra. You see... It's not saying that he's in the wrong. Not at all. He wasn't in the wrong at all. It's just saying that most, they didn't take him out of the list. They didn't take him out of the ranks of the great Jewish leaders. He was still there in the Sanhedrin. And therefore, he, he's there. He's enumerated. His name is there. But he's not maybe perhaps in the same position as before. Because the fact is that he did need to spend most of his time occupied with 
communal matters with government matters versus actual study of Torah. So everything seems to make sense and fall into place. However, there's still some questions that remain. Number two, I mean, number one, if indeed, like we just said, it was justified, and to most of Sanhedrin it was justified, then how come there were some that actually did separate from him? Why would they separate from him? In other words, if the majority consensus, the majority opinion was that he's in the right, then that should have prevailed, and then everybody should have been, so to speak, bound by this, and accepted Mordechai for what he was doing, because everybody's in agreement, the majority rules. Number two, if you look closely to these two passages in the Gemara, it would seem that they're actually contradicting each other. Here we say that most of his brethren were in agreement, that they actually supported what he did. And the next piece over in the Gemara seems to imply that no, it is less than studying Torah is actually greater. So, so which, is the, which, is, which is the correct one? Which is it? The answer is, says that I have an explanation of this is as follows. It doesn't say that they argued on him. It doesn't say that they were opposed to him. That's not what it says. It just says, They separate from him. In other words, they understood that perhaps his way is maybe the prevailing correct way. In other words, when there is no choice, yes, this is the prevailing way. You have to take this route. And indeed, they had no issue with Mordechai doing what he was doing. However, they themselves had maybe perhaps a slightly different philosophy. They had a different shita, and therefore they separated from him. In other words, they were not prepared, or they couldn't go along with Mordechai's way. So they stayed in their own in their own path, so to speak. They separated from him. The explanation for all of this, to better understand this, says the Rebbe, he introduces a very interesting story that happened with the Friedrich Rebbe, the previous Rebbe, and the Ragachabah. After the Friedrich Rebbe was expelled and, and left Russia, he settled in Riga, Latvia. But of course, the, what was on top of his mind was a concern for his brethren, for all the Jews back in Russia. So he convened, he, he invited and convened a, 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 a meeting with the greatest Jewish leaders of the time, various rabbis, various scholars, various activists. And his the purpose of the meeting was to establish like a board, a vad that will get together from time to time to discuss and uh, discuss uh, uh, tactics and discuss all kinds of plans and means of helping the Jews back in Russia and making sure that Judaism does not die in Russia. One of the notable dignitaries that were invited to this meeting was the Rogachava Goyen, Rabbi Yosef Rosen. After you know hearing what it's about, he said that he has to recuse himself. He will not be able to participate. He refuses. Why? And he said that the reason why he cannot participate is actually hinged hinges on a machloikis, a debate between the Bavli and the Yerushalmi, between the Babylonian and the Jerusalem Talmud. What is it? So the Rebbe explains what it is. In the Gemara Brachis, it says over there, describes how the Hasidim Harishonim, meaning the early pious ones, how they would spend their day, most of their day, engaged in davening. And it says that they would actually sit there in meditation and thought one hour, one full hour, in preparation of davening. Then they would daven for an hour. And then they would take another hour to, start to so to speak, 
you know, absorb the impact, the influence of that davening. In other words, every tefillah took them three hours, so this is a total of nine hours. So the Gemara asks, if so, how was their Torah preserved? And how was their work accomplished? In other words, you still need to live and you still need to learn Torah. So if they daven nine hours a day, there's only that many hours in the day, when do they have a chance to study Torah? When do they have a chance to take care of their needs? So the Gemara answers that because they were so pious, their Torah was preserved and their work was blessed. And in a short period of time, in a very little time, Hashem made it that whatever little they did was enough for them to earn a living and support themselves for the entire day. So this is how it appears in Gemara in Talmud Bavli. In Talmud Yerushalmi, however, the same story appears with one slight change which is actually not a slight change, but as we'll see, it's a very important and fundamental change. The, 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 the Gemara asks the same question. How did they, you know, how did they preserve the Torah? How did they keep up with their Torah learning? And the Gemara answers that because they were pious, there was a blessing that was given into the Torah. Now, what is the difference between these two? When you say that it's merely preserved, means that, like Rashi says, that they didn't, forget their learning, but not that they had any increase in the learning. In other words, it's just that their learning that they had did not diminish as a result of their full engagement in davening to the extent that it was for nine hours a day. But when you say mizbareches, that their Torah was actually blessed, that there was a blessing put into the Torah, this means that there was extreme success in understanding and, 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 and comprehending the, the, the Gemara in such a manner that immediately they were able to really, to deeply, to understand it on a very deep level, that which they were learning in a very, very short period of time relatively, and thus there was no loss for them, so to speak, in their learning, because they had an extra blessing in understanding everything much quicker. In other words, that because they were so righteous, according to the way the Yerushalmi presents it, there was actually an increase in their learning. It was actually an achievement in their learning, not just a preservation of what they already had, but actually an increase in their learning. And this is what the Raghad Shava was saying. If I'm going to participate in this board, and I'm going to take from my time of learning and dedicate it towards you know, these discussions and thinking and, whole, and, and planning for, for the Jews in Russia, then my learning will be diminished. Why? Because the halacha is like the Bavli. The halacha is like the Bavli. If the halacha was like the Yerushalmi, then I would have no concern. In a short period of time, I'd be able to accomplish what I, I normally accomplish in a whole day. But since the halacha is like the Bavli, in other words, I need to continuously increase my Torah knowledge. Go more and more and more. That's my task. If I go according to the Bavli, which that's the halacha, I'm not going to be able to increase because I'm not going to have the time available. And the time that I have available will only help me in preserving the Torah from the past. And the Rebbe says a very interesting thing that if we actually look closely, we'll appreciate that this difference between the Babli and Yerushalmi is not just a debate, but is actually fundamental and inherent in the style of learning. As we said in the introduction, the Babli style of learning is in a manner of, quote, darkness. We have to search. There's so much detail. There's so much nitty-gritty to go through until you reach the conclusion. And that requires a lengthy period of time. You can't just, so to speak, catch it right there in the moment on the fly. 
You need to engage in the actual process in order to fully understand it. Whereas the Yishalmi, it goes straight to the point. So if you have that extra blessing, there's such clarity, and you have now added clarity, then you get straight to the point right away, and then that can work. And says the Rebbe, now we can appreciate the difference between Mordechai and those people of the Sanhedrin, that minority in the Sanhedrin who separated from him. You see, most of the Sanhedrin, where are they from? Originally, they all originated from Eretz Yisrael. However, some of them spent a lengthy amount of time in Bavel, perhaps even over 50 years. And perhaps, therefore, you can say they became somewhat influenced by that style of learning. In other words, by that style of engagement in the, in the uh, procurement of Torah knowledge, they already became conditioned by the Babylonian style, by the, by the by, so to speak, the same way as the Talmud Babli, by that type of approach to studying Torah. And therefore, Mordechai, his philosophy was, his approach was, that if I engage in communal affairs, which he did, my Torah will not be lost because I'm going to have a bracha in my Torah. Uh, along, along, along these lines of the, like what the Yerushalmi says, that it's going to be enhanced. And therefore, the little time that I will have to dedicate to Torah will be so effective that I will learn, which I normally, you know, in that short period of time, I would accomplish and learn that which I would have normally had to take, you know, hours and hours and hours to do, which now I don't have available. Whereas the small group in the Sanhedrin, those who opposed him, not opposed him, those who separated from him, they were under the Babylonian influence and they couldn't agree with this because they couldn't see it that way. To them, in their experience, you need that much time to study Torah. So if you don't study Torah, then what happens? You're not going to be advancing in Torah. And therefore, they had to separate from that. That was not a, a, a style, that was not an approach that they could appreciate. Now, even though Mordechai had all the justification and it was correct in his approach, but still he did go down in stature. Remember we asked, why did he go down in stature? Because at the end of the day, the bottom line, there is a deficiency. There is something deficient in the fact that he was not able to totally dedicate himself in Torah. You know, in the same lines of those who are Torah and Nasim, like the Gemara describes, that there were those of the Chachamim, of the Sanhedrin, who their entire, so to speak, career, everything, everything they did, only exclusively was Torah. Yes, not being there is a step down. It's just a reality. But for Mordechai, even though it was a step down, because now he was not fully engaged in Torah, it wasn't his only, so to speak, occupation, but still he felt that it was more important for him to dedicate himself, to give himself over, to sacrifice himself for helping others, for saving lives, than it is for you know him being totally immersed in Torah. But the question is, okay, it's justified to leave Torah and to dedicate yourself. But how did he still remain part of the Sanhedrin? Or perhaps ask this question in a slightly reverse manner. How can how is it that the people the one the people in the Sanhedrin uh, it's demanded of them to leave their Torah and to give themselves over to help others? So the Rebbe answers that there is a Medrash. The Ton of the Belio says in regards to the Churban, that really the Sanhedrin is somewhat at the fault. Why? Because they should have gone, it says, I'm just quoting the, the words, and tied themselves up with ropes on their hips, meaning to like travel to far distances, ropes of chains, meaning that ones that one wear out, 
and go out there to all the dispersed people, to all the Jews, even the most remote places, and teach them Torah and strengthen their ways in Yiddishkeit, and the Chorba would have never come about. So the, the thing is, says, that I would think about it this way. The, the idea that a Sanhedrin is effective, meaning when is the Sanhedrin in effect? Not because only that they're all together convened, but it's also the geography, where the Sanhedrin is. The Sanhedrin only is effective when it sits there in the Lishka Sagazas in the chamber of the Sanhedrin in the Beis Hamikdash. And here the Torah of says they should have left there, in other words, lost their power of Sanhedrin, lost their stature of Sanhedrin, and gone out to teach the people. So it tells us that yes, it is the man that is required, it is, it is expected of the Sanhedrin to even sacrifice and diminish their own stature, their own standing, in order to do for the Jews, in order to do for others. And that their main task is to teach the Jewish people, to teach others, even if that requires to step down, so to speak, a little bit from their own greatness. And this is what happened to, to Mordechai. Mordechai had an obligation to, so to speak, step down. Yes, he did step down. It is a step down. You can't argue with that. That is a fact. But he had the obligation to do it and to totally dedicate himself to help, the, uh, to help his brethren because this is the benefit of the majority. And it says the Rebbe that we actually saw this conduct by his shver, by his father-in-law, the previous Rebbe, that he would, quote, steal from his own time in, you know, learn, from his own time of learning and serving Hashem in order to do to deal with communal matters and literally to save lives to Atzalus Nefashas. Not only did he do it himself, but he also demanded it and required it from the greatest of his students, the most studious of the Talmudim and Toichet Mimim, he demanded of them that in their time, from that instead of them being able to dedicate more time to Torah, that they should go out there and get involved in communal affairs such as establishing Hadarim schools and, 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 and uh, communal activities for children, for Jewish children, to, to raise the money even, to do all the procurement, just that there should be this toiva, this benefit for the Rabbim, for others, for other Jews. And he didn't, he, he what's it called again? He, um, he, um, he knew that they're going to lose from this. He understood that they're going to, so to speak, step down from their own Torah learning, but still he demanded it from them and he demanded it from himself. Now, the question is then, then the Rugged Shava. So was the Rugged Shava right or wrong? Says the Rebbe, in every generation there are Yechide Segula. There are the select few. For him, this was the right thing to do. In other words, for the Rugged Shava, he could not tear himself away from the Torah. But for everybody else, we have to take a cue. We have to... Um, you know, emulate and follow the lead of Mordechai, like the Baal Shem Tov says on the Gemara that says, that if some quote, if somebody reads the Megillah backwards, he doesn't fulfill his obligation. Literally, it means if you you read it out of order, if you read chapter 9 before chapter 8, then you haven't filled your obligation. The Baal Shem Tov says that the meaning of this is if somebody reads the Megillah, backwards, as something happened in the back, as a nice story that happened once upon a time ago, and does not apply it to right here, right now, he hasn't filled his obligation, he just read a nice story. And therefore, says the Rebbe, each and every one of us is demanded of him to be like Mordechai. That even if you have to take a step down, even if you have to, so to speak, lose your stature a little bit, you still have to dedicate yourself fully and totally to helping other Jews and to bring benefit to the masses of Jews 
even if you're going to lose a little bit from this. And this is the reason, says the Rebbe, we find something phenomenal. There's those who are oiskim people who engage in communal matters, versus the Talmud HaChachamim that are Torah Nasam, that their only endeavor is Torah. Chachamim that are only endeavor is Torah, when it comes to the time of saying Shema, they have to stop and say Shema. But the, the halacha is in the Rambam that if somebody is engaged in communal affairs and he cannot stop, then he is he is um, potter. He is he's not obligated to stop what he's doing in order to say Shema. He's exempt from saying Shema. And if this is when it comes to just helping Jews, begashmius, saving lives, literally, how much more so when it comes to saving spiritually the lives of a Jew?